Hi, everyone. We are continuing in this Romans series, and I noticed that last week we had Roman columns, but this week we have vines growing on it. It's amazing what one week does. I I wonder what will happen next week. All right. Love, according to kids aged between four to eight years old. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Rebecca, age eight. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Billy, age four. Love is what makes you smile when you are tired. Terry, age four. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Danny, age seven. Love is when you kiss all the time and then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. Emily, age eight. Love is an... Uh, Get this, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Bobby, age seven. If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. Nika, age six. Profound, right? Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. Noel, age seven. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. Aw, Tommy, age six. During my piano recital, I was on a stage and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me and saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that. I wasn't scared anymore. Cindy, age eight. Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Elaine, age five. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left it alone all day. Marianne, age four. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all of her old clothes and she has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) Lauren, age four. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. Karen, age seven. Love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and doesn't think it's gross. Mark, age six. (sighs) And all the married people go, "Eh." you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Jessica, age eight. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you that we can learn so much from children. And I want to thank you for your word. Um, that teaches us about everything. And today we want to see what your word in the book of Romans talks about um, love. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you come now and speak to each one of us. God, may your word change us, shape us. Whatever you want us to do, Lord, may we say yes in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we talk about love, let's start from the source of love. And Courtney started very, very good, in a good place. The source of love. God is love. Romans 5.5 says, For we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. For we know how dearly God loves us. Pause. Last week, Sandy talked to us about humility, and 
Sandy being, I just love Sandy. She's so profound and so wise and all of that. And her angle in talking about humility is knowing and loving yourself. When you know and love yourself well, you won't go trying to elevate yourself and do silly things and you can be humble. It's like, wow, so true. So we need to know and love ourselves well. And we start doing that by knowing how much God loves us. We need to know how much God loves us. Before I came to know God, I used to hate myself so much. I had an immense hatred for myself, and I did a lot of things as, a, as an uh, outward expression of that, and one of that is that I would physically hurt myself. And um, it would feel good temporarily, and, but as I came to know how much God loved me, he started to change me, and I started to change the way I saw myself, and I realized how much God loved me. I am so precious to him. Jesus looks at me and thinks I am treasure. And here I am slashing myself. How could I do that to someone he loves so much? How could I hate someone he loves so much? So I don't do that anymore because I know how much he loves me. Even before COVID, if I had a cold, I would stay home and go to sleep and not go to work because Jesus loves me. I really believed it. Jesus loves me, what would Jesus want me to do? He wants me to get better because Jesus loves me. For we know how much God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we place our trust in Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, Romans 3.23, it's, it's not on the screen, but it says that all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short. That means all of us have said to God, no, my way is better than your way. God says, forgive. We said, not much better to hold on to this grudge. And God says, um, give and share. We're like, not much better to save it for my Queensland trip. And um, sin is simply saying, my way, God, is better than your way. Not your will, but mine be done. And we all do that. We all have done that. And the scripture says, because of that, we deserve death. The consequence is death. Instead of tossing us out, which is what I would have done if I were God, thank God I'm not God. Instead of tossing us out, he took all that death and put it on himself and died so that we no longer have that consequence. So if we believe that what Jesus has done is enough for us to be forgiven, we are saved. We're made right with God. Our relationship with God is restored. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And it says here, he gives us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. Can I suggest you do something? I do this every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I ask the Holy Spirit to fill me. 
I open up my heart anew to the Holy Spirit, and I just say, come Holy Spirit. And then I just wait there in silence for a few moments, trusting that as I ask, he's filling my heart with his love. Sometimes I feel something amazing. Most of the time I don't, but over time I'm changed because I begin to understand how much God loves me. And that loves begin to flow out of me. Before I was a Christian, I, um, I told you I loved hurting myself, but actually it wasn't just myself. I was... Tim always said, when God saved me, he was really saving the world, because um, it's quite a, quite a cycle. So I actually had a compulsion to hurt people. I would go out of my way to hurt people. On one of my birthdays, we were like, hmm, who can I hurt? We actually go find a girl for me to hurt. It's awful. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's a wretch, mummy? Google it. Um, and when I became a Christian, that changed. I couldn't help but to help people, which was weird, like super weird. I didn't like to help people. I wanted to hurt people. Now I want to help people. I really, really do. My parents always tell me, can you just mind your own business? Yes, I do. I try to mind my own business, but I can't help it. When people have a need, I have to stick my nose into their lives, and I can't help it because God's love just overflows out of me. I do try and rein it in sometimes. <laughs> it doesn't really work. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Another thing I used to do before I became a Christian was that um, I was quite a trendsetter, but my family didn't have a lot of money. So how do you do that as a trendsetter without a lot of money? You get lots of friends. So what you do with your friends is you go take their clothes. You borrow their clothes, you borrow their shoes, borrow their money too. <laughs> so I had this wardrobe, and, but I never pay them back, and I never give them back to them. I don't know why they're still my friends, and, um, it, but it was amazing. I still had friends, but I had no desire or uncomfortableness that I was doing that, absolutely no issues. And when I became a Christian, God started to change my heart. I, I carried on that habit, but he started to put this discomfort in me. Don't you think it's weird that you're wearing your friend's clothes in front of her and not giving it back to her? Really? Yeah, yeah. And I slowly started to give things back. And I remember when I was at uni, I borrowed quite a sum of money from a friend, and um, I because God was already doing this work in my heart, I really wanted to pay her back, but I couldn't. I didn't have the money. And so I remember for quite, I think a couple of years, I owed her the money and I just felt awful. I felt this, ugh, like, you know when you owe people stuff, normal people would feel this. I didn't used to, I do now. And, um, and I remember that night when I had the money in the envelope and I, walked up to her and I gave it to her. And that feeling of breaking free. Slide, Jonathan. Sorry. Um, the audio file. <laughs> I want to break free. I want to break free. Okay, stop. 
before uh, Royce gets all excited. I can see he was getting all excited. We all want to break free. It's good, it's good. When you owe people money, you should pay them. The scripture says, owe nothing to anyone. So owe money, please pay. If you borrow stuff from people, please pay it back, except for your obligation to love one another. Do not try to break free from each other. Intentionally bind yourself to one another. It's weird, isn't it? It's in the scriptures. I didn't write it. So there you go. Um, as I talk about this, it's very common like, to talk about, I think a very good argument is, uh, I don't feel love. And Paris shared this um, with me, and I thought it was just wonderful. Um, Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. What are the first two words after love your enemies? Do good. That's how you love them. When Jesus calls us to love our enemy, he's not asking us to have a warm, fuzzy feeling for them. He's asking us to do good for them. Do something for them. Love is a command. Love God, love people, love your enemy. But we can't command a feeling. Okay, now I command you, be happy. It doesn't work, okay? You're just laughing because you think I'm an idiot. But now I command you, smile. That you can do. You can command an action, but you cannot command an emotion. C.S. Lewis says, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. Simple. Obligation to do good to and for people. In doing so, you are loving them. Easy. Um, more often than not, when we do that, the feelings will follow. Okay? Now, um, let's start with uh, where... Um, Lucas has read this in Romans 12, 9 to 10. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Love each other with genuine affection. And Paris said this too. Don't just pretend to love with words. Words are cheap. Love with action. Love sacrificially, painfully. Love riskily. Because when we love, we will get hurt. What does this mean for the early, the ancient Roman Christians? Now let's go back to the Roman columns. Imagine us all in Roman attire. All right, let's go back to the Rome, ancient Roman Christians. What would this mean to them? Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Love each other with genuine affection. If you're listening to this online and you have little children with you, the next two paragraphs might be a bit... Um, um, you might just want to close their ears for a bit. All right, so this is part of the law, the ancient um, Roman law. Deformed infants shall be killed. The deformity could be an unwanted child, a sickly child, a deformed child, or simply a wrong sex child. Roman law, religion, and the entire ethos of the ancient world saw nothing morally wrong with eliminating babies and abandoning newborns on the dung heaps or garbage dumps of cities. It was a very common practice. So imagine yourself as an ancient Roman Christian. There is nothing wrong with that. So everybody does it. It's just like 
drive-through. We all do drive-throughs here. No one will frown at you. You go dump a baby at the garbage dump, no one will frown at you. Of course, you should do it. It's in the law. Of course, that's what we all do. But against the culture, Christians, believing that each human was made in the image of God, valued by God, they sought out the tiny bodies of newborn babies from the refuse and dung heaps and raised them as their own, or they tended to them before they died and gave them a decent burial. I'm not sure how much these Christians felt love in doing so, but we know that they loved by doing so. They did what they did, and that's love, and it was costly. And I know so many couples when we were going through our adoption journey in Malaysia um, who did not feel love necessarily, but it was you either adopt this child or this child gets sold into human trafficking. So you turn your lives around. You don't have the money. You have already 12 kids. Never mind, turn your lives around and do it. I know a couple who have adopted 25 children. Second scenario for the ancient Roman Christians is in the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Whatever the actual disease, it was lethal. As many contagious diseases are when they strike a previously unexposed population. During the 15-year-long epidemic, 15 year, a quarter to a third of the population probably died of it. At the height of the epidemic, mortality was so great in many cities that the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who subsequently died of the disease, wrote of caravans of carts and wagons hauling out the dead. During the plague, the famous classical physician Galen fled Rome for his country estate, where he stayed until the danger subsided. But for those who could not flee, the typical response was to try to avoid any contact with the afflicted, since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, when the first symptom appeared, victims often were thrown into the streets, where the dead and the dying lay in piles. The Christians, however, met their obligation to love, to care for the sick rather than desert them, and as a result, saved many lives. Because even quite elementary nursing would greatly reduce mortality. Simple provision of food and water, for instance, will allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing miserably. And I wonder how many Christians died doing that. That's costly love. That's an obligation to love. That's to do good. Let's fast forward to 2021, Launceston, Tasmania, and wherever you are watching from. Um, so with the ancient Romans, we talked about the culture of the day of throwing babies out or throwing sick people out or during the plague, you know, and the Christians went against that in love. What is the culture in our day that we need to go against in love? Let me tell you the, I think, I think, the, I think the number one culture of our day that stops us from being who God wants us to be as a church, as a people, is look after number one. Mind your own business. Live your own life. Don't get involved. 
Because I'm Asian, I can really tell you that in Australia, it is very pronounced. Because in Asia, everybody's in everybody's lives. But here, it is a virtue to build your own life. It's good. Be independent. Do that. But we've got to a point where that is so much of a virtue that we say, don't get too busy. Don't stress yourself out. Don't get involved. It's okay. But like the Roman Christians, I want to suggest, let's go against that culture and love and to do good. Let's get involved. Even when we don't feel like it, even when it inconveniences us, even when it stresses us out. Yes. Even when it makes us busy. <gasps> Jesus was pretty busy, stressed out, and inconvenienced on the cross. And he taught us to love in the same way. How absorbed are we in our culture to look after number one, to look after our schedule, to look after our culture, that we don't love riskily, that we don't love sacrificially or painfully? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. If only we think of ourselves less, and it, again, it says in Romans, look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. To think about others, be others-focused. You'll find that actually when you do that, you'll be less depressed. So, what are some practical ways we can do that? Example, we can start by sitting and listening to someone even when we don't feel like it. You know that... Um, uh, suicide prevention campaign, Are You Okay? I love that campaign. However, how many times has someone come to me and said, I'm not okay? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy. Or, oh my goodness, it's the same story again. I don't want to do this. I don't want to. But the sitting and listening is very important even when I don't feel like it. Driving someone somewhere to church, to connect group, to uni, to Centrelink, even when it's inconvenient and it costs you time and money. Reaching out on Discord, Messenger, or Instagram to someone who's struggling or in need or alone. You know, people use social media as a cry for help often. You know, they post something and then we like, we just judge them. Instead of just judging them, maybe we can reach out to them. Sometimes what they need is not a one-time help. They need an ongoing friendship. Offer that. Volunteering at superheroes camp. But it's my Saturday. Yeah, get busy. Good. Volunteer at hospice care. Going the extra mile with the youth that you are leading and ministering to, not just on the Friday night. Pray for them every day. Reach out to them, think about them, love them, think about their birthdays, think about what their families need. Reaching out and befriending a refugee family on your street. Do you know the refugee family on your street? If there is any, I, I, I do. And visiting the elderly neighbor who is lonely, checking in on them regularly. Now this one, I love this one. Don't hate me for it, but just hold on, just listen. Say yes when the opportunities come to help to serve. I see so many young people saying, oh, but I'm learning to say no. Um, okay. Right. You only get to learn to say no when you have said yes too much. So first, say yes too much, and then we'll talk about learning to say no, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Just have to say that. 
My mantra is learn to say yes as much as I can, so that when I say no, there is strength to it. There is a valid reason for it, and it's fine. But say yes as much as we can. And when you're married, many of you are still single, I want to suggest maybe even now you can talk about if you're dating, when we're married, let's be a fostering family. Tim and I, before we were married, we already said we wanted to be an adopting family. And maybe that can be a dream that you can start growing within your family. Because in Australia, it's very hard to adopt a child, but desperately in need of fostering families. And I want to challenge you to ask God intentionally every day when you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, what do you want me to do, God? And he will pop some ideas in your head. If you wonder, if that's just me, no, it's not. Just do it. Okay, just go and do it. If it is not, if it is loving, encouraging, kind, comforting, do it, okay? So, and you will realize that God will begin to give you lots and lots of whispers. And then people will say, how did you know? This was exactly what I needed today. And it's amazing. Don't just pretend to love with our words. Truly love with our actions. Take delight in honoring each other. Yes, talk behind their backs. Really, go, go ahead, do it. Talk about how awesome they are. I love it when people talk behind my back. I don't know if they do, but if they talk behind my back and say I'm awesome, I think it's great. Let's go and do that, okay? And when people around you or yourself start gossiping, stop. Stop it. And just stop the people around you from gossiping. Just stop it. Defend them. When people are mistreated, stand up for them. How do I treat people? Am I honoring people with the way I treat people? Flirting is not honoring because we flirt to get something out of someone. Flirting is manipulating. Ignoring is not honoring. Someone send you a text and you ignore them and don't reply them for two weeks. That is not honoring. Being rude is not honoring. Gossiping is not honoring. Ghosting is not honoring. Trolling is not honoring. Rolling your eyes even on the inside is not honoring. Yes, Winnie. I do that quite often and I have to remind, not honoring. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Mother Teresa says, being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody. I think that is a much greater hunger, a much greater poverty than the person who has nothing to eat. Who around me feels unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody? Brene Brown says, belonging is being somewhere where you want to be and they want you. Fitting in is being somewhere where you want to be, but they don't care one way or another. Do I make people around me feel that I want them around? Help people feel wanted. Help them feel belong. This requires us to step out of ourselves, what we want, what we feel. Let others in. Invite them into our conversations. It's very troublesome, though. Like when I'm having a conversation with someone and we are in the dead of it, and then someone wants to say, oh, but if I let them in, then I have to explain to them. Do it. Invite them into the conversation, explain it. it. The more the merrier. Do you have a group of friends that's great and close and beautiful? I do. And I remember um, when Matthew was a baby, we went to, I went to a playgroup with Matthew and I saw a lady who was very quiet and she had, a, she had a child Matthew's age and I started talking to her. Turned out she moved from Melbourne to Launceston for two years and she didn't have any friends. And um, so I brought her to my group of friends. And um, 
Shortly after, she actually went through a major crisis, and because of that, she had friends around her. And it's inconvenient when you do that, but do it anyway. In, invite people into your home, into your life, into your schedule. At church, at work, at uni, at the party, there's always people who are new and people who don't belong. Love means we have the obligation to look out for them and include them. Welcome them, introduce yourself, get to know them. Explain to them what's happening. Um, now, I know that sometimes that's very daunting because what if I talk to them, then they're very quiet, I don't know what to do, then it's awkward, then I, I stress talk. Do you do that? When people are quiet, you, you start getting angsty and then you start acting like an idiot. You, you feel the silence and you start saying things you shouldn't. Don't need to do that. Just calm down. Just need to be there and just need to sit with them. Sometimes they don't want you to talk to them the whole time. They just want to be acknowledged. They want to be seen. They want to be wanted. That's all. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Make it not about us, but about them. Celebrating graduation, sobriety, wedding, babies, empathize with those who are weeping. Be there, be present. Author, author and lecturer Leo Buscaglia once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. The purpose of the contest was to find the most caring child. What a great contest. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, nothing, I just helped him cry. Step into someone else's grief. Allow yourselves to feel their pain. Sit with them, cry with them. If you can't cry, just sit. It requires us to step out of ourselves because I may be rejoicing, but if you are grieving, I need to come and grieve with you. And vice versa. Lastly, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Never pay back evil with more evil. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from an interview um, with um, Bob Goff. If you don't know who Bob Goff is, he's a human rights lawyer. He's also an author. He wrote, as far as I know, there are two books at least, Love Does and Everybody Always. And in this interview, he was talking about his book, Everybody Always. Um, from the book, we have a witch doctor school. These guys were sacrificing children. They were death penalty cases. I tried the first case in the country, but then I ran into Matthew 5 about loving your enemies. And I'm like, these guys are my, actually my enemy because of what they do. So I had to decide for me, do I want to be right or do I want to be Jesus? And then there's an opportunity to be bold, but you have to be humble. So we started meeting with the witch doctors. I actually met with over 1,000 witch doctors so far in Uganda. I command every witch doctor to meet with me, and they come, and they are creepy dudes. And I asked them, what do you need? And they said, well, we don't know how to read or write. So get this, I started a witch doctor school two years ago. It's so creepy. And the only books they have in witch doctor school are the Bible, and 
Love Does, his first book. And there's something beautiful that happens. And some of the stories in the book uh, of unlikely calls of people who used to do the most horrific things or have actually changed. Like they bumped into not all of my opinions, but they bumped into Jesus. I'm a lawyer. I win arguments for a living, but I'm not trying to be Jesus' lawyer. He said, follow me, not represent me. In our context, who are our enemies? For some of us, there really are people who hurt us and mistreat us. But for the rest of us, maybe it is the people who disagree with us on, on, on stuff that we believe so strongly about. Pray for them. Do good to them. Let's step outside of ourselves and love. Do good to others. Love sacrificially, painfully. Love riskily with our actions. What is God saying to you tonight? Can I ask the band to come up now? Thank you. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. And all of this we can do because we know how dearly God loves us. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Can I invite you to stand? I'm now just going to pray, and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come once again to fill our hearts with his love. When I stretch out my hands like this, it's not magical. <laughs> it is simply the opposite of this. It is simply the opposite of saying, I don't want anything to do with you. But when I open up my hands, it is a helpful body posture for me to receive. So if you feel comfortable to join me, I'm going to just pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Fill our hearts with your love. Lord, I thank you. I thank you so much that you first loved us. That you have filled our hearts with your love by your Holy Spirit. God, the call of love is high. And you have given us the perfect example. Jesus, you say greater love No one has greater love than this, but to lay down our lives for one another. God, in a culture that is very self-absorbed, in a culture where it's all about taking care of what's mine, I pray, Lord, that you teach us to step out of ourselves and love in a way that our culture doesn't understand and love in a way that is almost unwise. <laughs> 
and love in a way that is risky, in a way that stresses us out, in a way that makes us busy, in a way that, God, it just goes against everything that we're trying to build for our lives. But that is your call of love. Lord, I just pray that you will help us love. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.